Islam hates women. I have never seen anyone more deficient in intelligence and devotion than women. Muhammad. I have never seen any woman suffer as much as Muslim women suffer. Aisha, nine-year-old wife of Muhammad. Ponder this. Paradise is for men only, and hell is full of women. This is the disturbing Islamic concept of the different worth of men and women. Paradise is for men only, and hell is full of women. Traditionally, a Muslim woman is valued only when she supports her family with complete and joyful self-denial as a mother, as a wife, as a daughter, as a sister. A woman is a dependent creature at the service of the males around her, her sons, her husband, her father, and her brothers. She is not a human with enough room to flourish on her own. We will see some of the reasons for this in a moment. But she becomes precious when she quietly and obediently serves the needs of the men in her family environment. If she does not do so quietly and obediently, things are quite different, as the most revered collection of the Hadiths, the sayings and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad, explain to us. Sahih al-Bukhari, Volume 1, Book 6, Hadith 301. On one occasion, Allah's apostle walked past the place where the women were and said, O women, you had better bring many offerings, for I have seen that most of the inhabitants of hell are women. And they asked, Why is it so, O Prophet of Allah? And he answered them, Because you often grumble and are ungrateful to your husbands. The 9th century writer and compiler Ismail Ibrahim al-Bukhari, I will explain soon who he was, is a fundamental piece, the most fundamental writer in Islamic theology, second only to the Quran, and often as influential as the very Quran, because Bukhari explains and illustrates the often obscure message of the Quran in practical terms for daily life. In this text we just read, Bukhari has the Prophet declare that most sinners in hell are women, burning there for the sin of grumbling and being disobedient and ungrateful to their husbands. Muhammad continues and adds salt to the wound. Listen to the rest of the story. I have never seen anyone more deficient in intelligence and devotion than women. A sensible and cautious man could be deceived by you. The women asked, O Prophet of Allah, what is deficient in our intelligence and devotion? The Prophet replied, Is not the evidence of two women equal to the testimony of one man? They answered, Yes. The Prophet replied, This is the deficiency in their intelligence. And is it not true that a woman cannot pray or fast during her menses? The women answered, Yes. And then the Prophet replied, this is the deficiency in their devotion. This text is very worrying. Bukhari, the trustworthy and correct Bukhari, tells us here that Muhammad condemned women because 1. A woman's legal testimony is worth only half that of a man, implying that a woman's intelligence is only half that of a man. And 2. Women are guilty of the exasperating habit of menstruation 
that physical weakness whereby they become genetically deficient in devotion, regardless of their virtue, integrity, goodness, and service. Bukhari has Muhammad condemned women for having the bad habit of bleeding several days every month. So, unless they stop being Muslim and stop menstruating, that is, unless women stop being Muslim and stop being women, women are forever and hopelessly doomed to be deficient in their intelligence and devotion, no matter how brilliant, sweet, and generous they are. Unless they stop menstruating, women will always be second-class human beings deficient in devotion. Women can be beautiful and helpful, yes, but never as valuable and reliable as men. This is very worrying. There are one billion Muslim women on the planet today. One billion human beings that fall under the blow of judgments like this. Allow me to pause to explain briefly what hadiths are. And I will also explain who Ismail Ibrahim Bukhari was, the compiler of these hadiths. Hadiths are foundational Muslim stories, often as disconcerting and disquieting as this one I have just read for you. Hadiths should not be, but they are an integral part of the Islamic religion because they settle disputes and doubtful interpretations of the Quran. Hadiths provide, we are told, the correct Islamic teaching on almost every aspect of Islamic life, based on statements and actions attributed, spuriously, I believe, to Muhammad. The hadiths are collections of the sayings and deeds of the Prophet as remembered by ordinary people decades and centuries after the Prophet's death. They were preserved and collected by oral tradition at various times in various places, but among all the collections of the Prophet's sayings and deeds, and there's a dozen of them. Sahih al-Bukhari is the most revered and trusted. It is enshrined as the most authoritative. The title Sahih means authentic, genuine, trustworthy. In Islam, Sahih al-Bukhari, i.e. Bukhari, the authentic, the truthful, the trustworthy, is revered and followed with almost the same zeal and urgency as the Quran itself because it explains and illustrates the teachings of the Quran in a practical way. Whatever Buhari tells us cannot be taken lightly as a mere legend or fantasy, although it certainly sounds as such. If the trustworthy Buhari, if the genuine Buhari, claims that Muhammad said something, Buhari is undoubtedly correct. And Islam makes the fatal mistake of following Buhari when, and I say this with all respect, he insults the Prophet Muhammad with such passages as this. Let me pause now to clarify who Ismail Ibrahim al-Bukhari was and what his contribution to the history and practice of Islam has been for over 1,000 years. According to the official Islamic narrative, Bukhari traveled for 16 years through the Abbasid Caliphate in the 9th century, collecting more than 600,000, more than half a million, sayings and anecdotes about the life of the Prophet Muhammad that people had received through oral tradition. These are all stories people heard because they didn't know how to read, and there was nothing to read yet anyway. 
more than half a million sayings, bits of gossip and legend had been passed down to them by their grandparents, imams, or neighbors. Bukhari published his collection around the year 846, more than 200 years after Muhammad died in the year 632. It is almost impossible to imagine today what this implies, but let's suppose that only today, in the second decade of the 21st century, we were finally engaged in collecting the sayings and anecdotes of the life of characters like Abraham Lincoln, Fyodor Dostoevsky, or Ludwig van Beethoven, who lived 200 years ago. And all we have at hand are the anecdotes and memories of people who heard something from their parents and grandparents, who heard something from their parents and grandparents, who in turn heard it from their parents and grandparents, who in turn heard it from their parents and grandparents for eight or even ten generations after Lincoln or Dostoevsky or Beethoven were already dead. How reliable and trustworthy could any report be from people who lived 200 years after the fact in other cities and regions of the world? Forget it. There's no way they could be telling the truth, even with the best of intentions. Listen, my Muslim friends, there is no way this could ever work. Did you ever play the game of Chinese whispers? Do you remember that we all get in a circle and someone says something in the ear of the person next to them? That person, in turn, tells it in the ear of the next person next to them, and so on until the last person in the circle finally says out loud to the group what they were told. And we roll around on the floor laughing, because the story that the last person in the circle heard has nothing to do with what the first person told. In the space of only two minutes, with all participants in the same room, the same evening, the story has been transformed beyond recognition. That is the fatal inefficiency of any oral tradition, of anything not written down, because everyone tells the story in their way. And those of us who listen twist it in our turn because we conveniently forget some details but arbitrarily highlight others. And that is why the story is changed and corrupted inevitably at every step during its transmission. Because every step in the chain of transmission is a retelling, a reworking of the original story. It is not as if it takes bad faith to corrupt a story deliberately. It is that human beings are incapable of listening to something without passing it through the dirty filter of our minds and interpreting and correcting it as we find most useful or appropriate. Even if we have the best possible intentions, we inevitably twist the original story, because when we tell it ourselves, it has already passed through the filter or the guillotine of our personal tastes, prejudices, and experience. Our story will already be a lie, even if we have the best will and possess the best memory. And, my Muslim friends, that is the inescapable problem with the Hadiths, which would make a fine collection of colorful Arabian stories to read. But the gatekeepers of Islam decided to grant these patently spurious and embarrassing stories of the Prophet the status of genuine, trustworthy illustrations on how to live the Muslim life. Note that I'm saying this in defense of Muhammad, 
Dear Muslim friends, Islam has a fatal weakness here. Islam has fatal flaws, but this is one of the worst among them. How can pious Muslims, as you, impose on the Prophet the lies and legends invented by minor people who never met him in person, never heard him in person, nor studied his teachings with any dedication or care because they could neither read nor write, and anyway, there was nothing to read yet? I ask sincerely, how can pious Muslims keep repeating stories that make the Prophet look so ill-informed and so petty-minded? I am saying this in defense of Muhammad. How can Muslims countenance the portrayal of the Prophet dictating on the medicinal virtues of fly wings? The fly carries disease on its left wing, but it brings the cure to the disease on the right wing. How can you have Muhammad speaking on the virtues of drinking camel urine to keep the doctor away? There are videos on YouTube of people doing just this, believing they follow a teaching of the Prophet. And even more shockingly, how can you, my pious Muslim friends, have the Prophet dictating on the correct way to beat our wives, as we will see very soon? Such humongous faux pas and gigantic absurdities are attributed to Muhammad by Bukhari and the other collections of hadiths. There are a dozen collections of hadiths. I don't say this myself, and I dare to think that neither would Muhammad say this, but Bukhari does say it, and so does Islam. Women are most of the inhabitants of hell and are deficient in intelligence and devotion compared to men. How can Islam denigrate women this much? The official Islamic narrative tells us that Bukhari collected more than 600,000 sayings and legends of the Prophet, like the one we've been discussing, over the span of 16 years. This already has to be a lie, because no person in the 9th century could collect 600,000 of anything, except grains of sand in the Arabian desert. We are talking about the 9th century. Even today, the most brilliant and agile historian, with the help of Google, ChatGPT, and a supercomputer, could not gather 600,000, more than half a million, sayings and anecdotes about Lincoln, Dostoevsky, or Beethoven. And note that these are oral anecdotes, spoken legends, not written ones. By the way, and this rightly ought to upset a lot of good pious Muslims, we do not have any documentary or archaeological evidence for the existence of Muhammad. Some brave scholars claim that it is quite possible that Muhammad never really existed, but that will be a worthy topic for another day. Today we are discussing whether Islam hates women and remarking on how the trustworthy Bukhari gives us a highly negative portrait of the Prophet Muhammad. We'll see more examples of this in a minute. For all its best efforts to appear credible, the official Islamic narrative tells us that by the year 846, Bukhari had purged his bulging collection and approved only 7,563 sayings and anecdotes of the Prophet out of the 600,000 lies he had collected. And if they were not lies, why did he expurgate them? We need to brace ourselves and do the math. 
If Buhari did indeed manage to collect 600,000 sayings and stories attributed to the Prophet over 16 years in the 9th century, without the aid of digital archives, libraries, Google, or computers, that means he managed to listen to, transcribe, annotate, record, file, and classify over 100 myths and legends every single day, Monday to Monday, without stopping or resting for a single day to eat, sleep, or travel for 16 years solid. Really? Do the math yourself, especially if you are, as I pray, a Muslim, a devout Muslim. With all my heart, Simply collecting 600,000 sayings and legends for 16 years means that Bukhari collected 37,500 hadiths per year, 3,125 per month, or more than 100 every day of every month, from Monday to Monday without stopping for a single day for 16 years. What a phenomenal accomplishment. But instead, with all my heart, what a blatant lie. No human being could ever collect, decant, and classify all this material without the help of a vast team of researchers and the most advanced computer systems we have today. But the official Islamic narrative claims that Bukhari did it, and optimally, 1,200 years ago, while traveling the dusty, winding roads of the Middle East. With all the goodwill in the world, we must conclude that Bukhari is another fabrication in the long list of fabrications plaguing the Islamic narrative and religion. But let us now return to today's topic, which was meant to be Islam's institutional hatred of women. Sorry for that long but indispensable contextualizing pause, because to most of us, including most honest Muslims, Islam is just so complex and alien that it requires such considerable detours to place it in context. The text we read first was Sahih al-Bukhari, Volume 1, Book 6, Hadith 301. Just a few paragraphs later, Hadith 310 illustrates how Muslim women inhabit an existential and emotional echelon inferior to that of men. These are the words of a woman called Umatiya. We were forbidden to mourn for a person for more than three days, except for a husband, for whom it is permitted to mourn for four months and ten days. So, no sister, daughter, mother, or wife deserves more than three days of mourning. It is explicitly forbidden, she tells us, to mourn a woman for more than three days. Ah, but the husband, regardless of whether he was a perfect lout, that is a significant loss. You can mourn him for more than four months. Mourn a woman for no more than three days. Mourn a man for 130 days. Let's return to the genuine, authoritative Bukhari. In Volume 7, Book 62, Hadith 132. And yes, how complicated and mind-numbing it can be to research the sacred texts of Islam. But I leave all these references in the notes for you to go and torture yourself at your pleasure. Anyway, in Volume 7, Book 62, Hadith 132, we find this edict. The Prophet said, None of you should whip his wife as he whips a slave girl, and then have sexual intercourse with her that same night. 
Once again, the reliable and trustworthy Bukhari makes the prophet look extremely bad. None of you should whip his wife as he whips a slave girl, and then have sexual intercourse with her that same night. No matter how you read it, it sounds appalling. Ask yourself, which prophet or avatar of whatever religion you know, imagine, or practice, would ever dare talk about how to properly whip your wife? None. Can you imagine Moses, Confucius, Lao Tzu, Christ, Buddha, Zoroaster, Krishna, Guru Nanak, Baha'u'llah, Joseph Smith, Karl Marx, or even Charles Darwin? Can you imagine any of them tolerating this thought, even crossing their minds, and teaching it to their disciples? But according to the reliable Bukhari, Muhammad, the Prophet of Allah, not only pondered, but even ruled explicitly on this repulsive topic of how to whip our wives. And our female slaves, of course. For Muhammad, according to the Hadiths and the Sirat, the official biography of the Prophet, had and sold hundreds of slaves. This is very worrying. If the Prophet Muhammad had stopped after Bukhari made him say, none of you should whip his wife, we would all be thrilled and feel very civilized. Of course, no one should ever whip anyone, let alone his wife. But according to Bukhari, the authoritative and trustworthy, Mohammed does not stop there, but continues, none of you should whip his wife as he whips a slave girl. That is, far from forbidding the whipping of a wife, let alone a poor slave girl, the prophet only forbids the wife to be whipped as a slave. Gabriel, stop it! Okay, I'll stop. Of course, educated and sensitive Muslim men will never whip their wives. They're far more intelligent than that. I can't imagine Barack Obama beating Michelle Obama, for example. Can you? But can you imagine the jihadis of Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, the Islamic State, or countless abusive husbands across the Islamic world over the past 14 centuries. How many of these violent and abusive Muslim men are still whipping their wives and daughters right now, as we speak, with the full and explicit consent of the Prophet, as Bukhari claims? It is chilling that Bukhari's hadith gives us room and license to interpret at our pleasure the words he foisted on Muhammad. If we whip the slave girl 30 times, we can whip the wife 29 or 31 times and we have satisfied the commandment and our virtuous Muslim husbands. Or we could also use a different whip. How about using the black whip for our slave and keeping the blue one for our wife? As long as we don't whip the wife like we whip a slave, we've done our duty. Brownie points. <sighs> can revelations like these make you feel attracted to Islam? And the reliable and genuine Sahih al-Bukhari. But even more cruel than the whipping that day is the reason why it is not advisable to whip your wife so hard. Not because you love her, not because you owe her any respect or gratitude, but because you still want to have sex with her that night. 
You want your wife to be available and presentable that night to satisfy your appetites and not convalescing in some hospital. Or if you were so angry that you whipped her like a slave, and there is no limit to the whipping of a slave because a poor slave is just a piece of property and you can do with her as you please. Then just don't sleep with her that night, okay? Deny yourself the pleasure of her body that night. And you've cleared your conscience as a good Muslim husband. No wonder Andrew Tate, Alpha Tate, Alpha Tiger, converted to Islam. It's a dream come true for him, isn't it? Now he has divine sanction to be the meanest and loudest macho among all macho men. When we know what we know about Islam after reading passages like this, from sources which are fundamental in Islamic theology and practice, can we expect the women of the world to see the light and run to embrace Islam? Because it is the perfect religion for all mankind, as Quran chapter 5 verse 3 claims it is. These cruel, callous texts make it evident that in Islam a wife is just a helpful piece of furniture. Don't ever kick your chair too hard because you will need to sit on it to have dinner tonight and you want it to still be in working order. Does it not alarm you that there is no question that the wife is whippable? Nor is there any question as to why a husband would want or even have the right to whip her like a slave. The venerated collection of hadiths that illustrates most aspects of Islamic life recommends that she should not be beaten so much that she ceases to serve you. Even battered and bleeding, your wife still has the divine task of loving you and satisfying all your twisted appetites. That same night, after you whipped her into submission. Submission. Precisely what the word Islam means. I know that many, many Muslims around the world have come to realize that Bukhari and the other collections of hadiths are a great embarrassment to Islam. They want Quran-only Islam. I'm sure that many people, bona fide Muslims and even infidels like me, are thinking now, well, that's what the liar Bukhari claims Muhammad said, but surely that's not what the noble, the sublime Quran would say. That was my own path into this subject. But it must be said that, sadly and regrettably, the Quran condones and encourages prejudice and violence against women and many other groups and peoples in the most insidious ways. There's just no way to hide all the evidence. If you were ever to seek marriage counseling in the Quran, this is what Surah 434 teaches you. Men are in charge of women because Allah made them superior to them. Oh well, with such a ground rule in place, we move confidently forward. This is the Quran. So these are, as demanded by the official Islamic narrative, the undisputable words of Allah. Whatever a woman's worth, no matter what a woman achieves, however brilliant, loving, and wonderful a woman may be, and you and I know thousands and thousands of them, the problem is that Allah did not give her the distinction of being a man. <laughs> 
that's what the Quran says. Her only option is to let the men around her rule over her, regardless of whether they are dunces, as often happens, without a single scrap of intelligence, education, or grace. Women are created genetically inferior because Allah made men superior to women. Quran 4.34 And this is not just a poetic statement. We see the evil consequences of this Quranic text every day in the 21st century in Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Iran, to mention just a few staunchly Islamic countries. No matter how we try to explain it away, we have to conclude that Islam hates women. Listen to the rest of the surah, chapter 434 of the Quran. Upright women are devoutly obedient, and in the absence of their husbands, they protect their private parts. As for those women in whom you observe misconduct, admonish them, refuse to share their bed, and beat them repeatedly. But if they become obedient again, do not seek other ways to punish them further. Allah is always high, exalted, and great. Oh, goodness. This is very wearing, because the Quran is regarded as sacred by one-third of humankind. This is the unchanging, eternal, immutable text of the Quran, the eternal and unadulterated words of Allah, the All-Merciful. Please look it up, Quran 434. Read the whole of chapter 4 of the Quran, by the way. Troublesome women are to be beaten repeatedly. And how shall we do that? Are they to be pounded with sticks and canes? That is what the Quran sanctions for any angry, violent, psychotic man out there. And at this point, the defenders of Islam cry foul, claiming that the original Arabic text does not say they should be beaten repeatedly. It only says to beat them. It only says that we have to beat them. We decide whether a lot or a little, but quarrelsome women must be beaten. If this sounds impossible for you to believe, if you think that surely the Arabic original said something entirely different, this is just a mistranslation of the Arabic original, and you want a most authoritative Islamic theologian to clarify the meaning of the text and to explain it in more correct terms. Consider the revered Al-Qurtuvi's commentary on Quran 434. Why are men commanded to beat their wives? This is because men are responsible for straightening their wives. The blows mentioned in this verse are of the type that is not severe and are employed for discipline. The kind of beating that does not break the bones. However, it is not a crime if it causes death. Can you understand that? It does not break the bones, but it's not a crime if it causes death. Wow. Al-Qurtuvi is a hallowed Muslim theologian. Perhaps we should look for clarification elsewhere then, and consider the analysis of Al-Tabari, another revered Muslim theologian who advises all of us males on how to deal with difficult women. Tie them up in your houses and beat them until they obey Allah's command in your favor. 
Tie them up in your houses and beat them until they obey Allah's command in your favor. This is appalling. But yet another venerable Islamic sage, Ibn Hajar, who, according to Wikipedia, was a classical Islamic scholar whose work constitutes the final summary of the science of Hadith, Ibn Hajar says, commenting on the ingratitude of women toward their husbands, The Prophet said, Had he commanded any person to prostrate to another, he would have commanded the wife to prostrate to her husband. So the Prophet associated the rights of the husband over his wife with the rights of Allah. If a woman falls short in fulfilling her husband's rights, she falls short of fulfilling Allah's rights. Listen, dear Muslim woman for whom I have the greatest respect and compassion, for the one billion of you, for the one billion of you on earth today, we must fight this battle. Islam dictates that your husband is associated with your God. You fail your husband, you fail your God. If your husband is your God, you have become an idolater. And now you know you must abandon that husband and abandon Islam. What more evidence of the inferior status of women in the Quran? According to Quran 4.11, sons should inherit a portion equal to that of two women, i.e. men receive twice as much as women. Quran 4.12 instructs that when a wife dies, the husband should receive half of whatever she has left. But if the husband dies, his wife can only receive a quarter, half of a half, of whatever he has left. That is as far as property is concerned. As far as sexuality is concerned. <sighs> a dark precedent is set for those of your wives who commit unlawful sexual acts, i.e. have sex outside marriage. That is, for example, any woman who is raped. Islam distrusts women so much that according to Sharia law, the law governing all disputes and conduct of Muslim peoples, a raped woman, if she is brave enough to complain about the rape, must gather four male witnesses to testify in her support. Four male witnesses. Since it is practically impossible for there to have been four male witnesses to a rape, Four men who were just passing by saw what was happening and did not take the opportunity to join the party and rape her too, but were outraged and ran to the aid of the raped woman. How often do you think that would happen? How many victims of rape do you think ever managed to gather that select group of four male witnesses willing to support them in their claim? And so, even when a victim of rape musters the enormous courage to complain, her case collapses. And then she, the raped woman, ends up being accused of having seduced or provoked the innocent rapist and of having lowered herself. And him, poor thing, 
to have sexual relations outside marriage, i.e. illegal sexual intercourse. In Sharia law, the highest rule of law for any Muslim, ruling over and above the law of any adopted country a Muslim person may live in, American Muslims should put Sharia law above American law. French Muslims put Sharia law above French law. According to Sharia law, rape is always the fault of the woman, unless the woman, after being raped, gathers herself, gets up, and goes to find four men to testify in her favor. That is just no way to do justice, Muslim friends. What if you are a 10-year-old girl, raped in your own home, in some hidden alley? Where will you ever find four adult males who have witnessed and are willing to testify on your behalf, instead of raping you too, taking the chance, because since you have already defiled yourself by having sex outside marriage, what is the fate of these women, even if they are soft and desperate girls and boys who have sustained years of persistent rape at the hands of their fathers, stepfathers, brothers, relatives, neighbors, or teachers. The Noble Quran 4.15 instructs, Confine them at home until they die. In other words, lock up the raped woman, girl or boy, in some dungeon until they starve to death. How does confine them at home until they die, sound to you. And at this point again, the Quranic scholars will cry out, offended, that I dare quote this Quranic verse because it was abrogated, or corrected, or updated. In Islam, yes, abrogation. Allah corrects himself numerous times, usually to make things even worse. That is why Quran chapter 24, verse 2 gives us the updated and improved version of what Quran chapter 4, verse 15, which we have just read, says. Quran 4.15 says that you should lock up this rotten, guilty woman until she dies or starves to death. It's up to you. Quran 24.2 offers a better and more merciful alternative. If a woman is guilty of adultery, she must be publicly stoned to death. And if a woman is guilty of fornication, and every woman who is raped is guilty of fornication, sex outside marriage, as we have already seen, oh, well, then just give her 100 lashes. Thank you, Allah, the All-Merciful. However we look at it, the Quran and the Hadiths, the sayings and deeds attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, teaches that women are, by decree, inferior in intelligence, devotion, courage, esteem, biology, and character to any man, no matter how stupid, useless, or violent this man may be. And to rob more salt on women's wounds, Islamic Sharia law and the Quran give this violent yokel the right to straighten her out with blows and beatings at his pleasure. This has been the sanctioned practice for Muslim husbands since the earliest days of Islam on earth. Bukhari 7, 72-715 tells us that one day a beaten woman came to seek help from little Aisha. Aisha is the girl who at the age of only nine 
became the prophet's favorite wife. This victim of marital violence came to ask Aisha to intercede for her. Aisha was just a child, but she would have seen a lot of violence already as her prayer to her husband, the prophet, shows. I have never seen any woman suffer as much as Muslim women suffer. This is the experience of a girl only nine years old gently trying to intercede for a battered woman who came to seek her help. And then she shows the prophet the bruises on the woman's body, the evidence of the many blows this victim had suffered. Look, her skin is greener than her cloak. This is sad and appalling beyond words, because one billion Muslim women are living under the laws and customs of Islam today. One billion women live under the horrific weight of laws like the ones we have examined here and many more. I wonder why Western feminists never mentioned this. Mm. They just want promotion and be heads of corporations. But supposed to be working for women, aren't they? Or is it just for more power, more university grants? Hmm. The defenders of Islam and Quran 5.3 tell us that Islam is the religion of peace, the perfect religion for the whole of humankind in the 21st century. Islam is so far from appreciating women that it does not even see them. It does not even know how to talk about them. To speak of women as human beings with rights and freedoms is so alien, so unimaginable to Islam that it does not even have the words or terms to do so. Listen to the admirable Ayan Hirshi Ali, a Somalian woman who fled to escape an arranged marriage. And you can imagine when you see what Muslim husbands can get to do, how palatable an arranged marriage with a stranger looks. This is what Ayan says. Since the very foundation of Sharia law rests on the dictates of the Quran and the Hadiths, no vocabulary in Islam can be used to emancipate women. All the words for women's rights and women's basic freedoms are invariably Western. If you fight for access to education or the right to vote, the right to drive, or the right not to be beaten or stoned, the vocabulary you have to use to present your arguments is Western, because Islamic texts and the Arabic language simply do not have the words to express these kinds of rights and opportunities. Ayan Hirshi Ali, please look up her superhero story on the internet. I'll leave you links in the notes has had to live for years under 24-hour police protection, threatened with that for saying things like this, which offended delicate sensibilities of the always angry leaders of the religion of peace. Her skin is greener than her cloak. And this has only been the beginning of the story. Islam's contempt for women is so insidious and relentless that it not only humiliates and suffocates women in this world, but also humiliates and suffocates them in the hereafter. How? 
I made the provocative statement at the beginning that, according to Islam, paradise is for men only and hell is full of women. Don't believe me yet. I still need to prove that to you. In the next episode of this podcast, we will examine the Islamic idea of paradise as a luxury brothel. Subscribe now. You cannot afford to miss it. Thank you so much for coming with me in this long journey. My name is Gabriel Porras. I am a philosopher, journalist, editor, producer, and voice artist. Visit me at gabrielvoice.com and radiantwhispers.com if you would like to hear more of my work. Let us not forget that as we speak, one billion Muslim women live under the harsh laws and customs we put over today. Share this program to help their cause. Thank you.